Welcome to the Public Morality. In a pair of 72 rulings, the United States Supreme Court appeared to have delivered a split decision on subpoenas for President Donald Trump's tax returns and personal financial records, unanimously rejecting his broad claims of absolute immunity in a New York State criminal investigation, but ruling that lower courts did not do enough to scrutinize congressional subpoenas for similar records. Was this a win for President Trump, the state of New York? And moreover, was it a loss for the American people? To answer these questions and others, I'm joined once again by NYU constitutional law professor and former clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall, Richard Pildes. Richard Pildes, welcome back to The Public Morality. I'm very glad to be back here again. Thanks very much for having me. Um, let us begin. If one simply uh, read the headlines, they would likely believe the Supreme Court split on the subpoenas for President Trump's tax returns and personal financial records. But if one took a more nuanced view, would they reach the same conclusion about what the court actually did? Well, I think as a matter of law, uh, both of these decisions uh, sort of reaffirm and help establish extremely important foundational principles, both of which basically stand for the proposition that the president is not above the law, uh, that both Congress and state criminal prosecutors under certain circumstances do have the ability, if justified, to seek records uh, from the president. Uh, and um, I think, as the court said in one of these cases, uh, the president is not above the law. In another case, the court said the public has the right to every man's evidence, including the president's, which is a quote from previous cases. Um, so, in terms of the principles they establish and solidify, uh, I think they are both very strong cases for the accountability of the president to law. Now, as a practical political matter, we can talk about that separately. Um, you know, what these cases are going to mean on the ground over the next several months uh, is another matter. But, but in terms of practical legal principle, these are very, very important cases that will uh, set the contours for presidential accountability to law for many, many years. Well, I, we are going to talk. I wanted to talk about some of the practical, short-term matters. But before I get there, I heard something uh, yesterday. It's funny how you, um, I was preparing for this interview, and I heard someone say yesterday, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Someone they they said the president lost, but the presidency won, or or was it the? Way, I don't want to know. How, did you see it that way, or is it the other way around? How do you see that? <laughs> um, well, again, this goes to the, the difference between the legal results here and what the political consequences may be. So, uh, with and these are two very different cases, and we should talk about the differences, but, you know, in one of the cases, Congress was subpoenaing uh, the president's accountants for his business records, um, and the president lost on all the principles he was trying to fight for. Um, for example, uh, the president argued that the court shouldn't hear this dispute at all. Uh, the president also argued that he should be absolutely immune. Uh, and the Supreme Court very forcefully in these 72 decisions rejected those arguments. Um, so I would say 
the Constitution or the rule of law or Congress's ability to hold the president accountable, uh, all of those are, are what won. But it may be as a political matter that President Trump on the congressional case um, has effectively run out the clock, uh, particularly if he's not reelected, because it's unlikely that Congress is going to be able to actually get the documents they want uh, before he would leave office if he's only there for this term. Um, the case with the district attorney in, in, in New York, um, I think, is a lot more consequential potentially in terms of the political or legal ramifications, uh, particularly in the short term. Well, because uh, this is the first time a district attorney has brought a subpoena in a criminal action, I should say a state or local district attorney, has brought a subpoena in the context of a criminal action potentially against the president. Um, and there were questions before the court decided this case about whether uh, the court would hold that presidents are just immune from such actions. Uh, and again, the court rejected that and said that the, the Manhattan DA um, does have the legal authority to subpoena these records, uh, the business records, again, from the Trump organization and his accountants. And that is going to move faster, I believe, than the congressional case. Uh, the judge who's presiding in that case, which is a, was a state judge in New York, has already uh, told both sides that by this Wednesday, they need to tell him whether particularly the president's lawyers, are going to continue to contest these subpoenas and on what grounds. And I think it's pretty clear this judge intends to move quickly to address whatever remaining arguments the president might have here. Um, and uh, I, I expect that case to move fast and the records uh, most likely to be required to be provided to the Ma Manhattan DA now, it's in the context of a grand jury investigation to see whether a crime or crimes have been committed. So those won't be public documents because there's secrecy with the grand jury. But if they result in an indictment, which could be an indictment of figures high up in the Trump organization, you know, which may or may not include the president, may or may not include uh, family members, uh, but could include other people uh, involved in running the businesses. If there are indictments that issue, then we will see all of those records that are relevant to the criminal prosecution. Um, and if President Trump is defeated, um, those indictments, if there's a basis for uh, concluding that the president himself uh, in his business uh, operation uh, had engaged in anything that's criminal under the laws of New York, um, that could issue that that could result in an indictment of the president once he leaves office, um, and that might happen, you know, relatively quickly uh, after January twentieth, given the pace at which I expect this case to proceed in the state courts in New York. Now, now, now to be clear, uh, in the New York case, they are not asking. President Trump directly to turn over his financial records. Is that correct? Um, that's uh, true in both cases. Both of these cases, the subpoenas were directed uh, e either to the accounting firm, um, Mazars, that, that actually does the accounting for the, uh, the businesses, 
or to the Trump organization, business entities. Um, uh, the president himself doesn't actually have to do anything uh, specifically to respond to these subpoenas. Um, he doesn't have to turn over documents that are in his possession. The, the subpoenas are not, uh, uh, they don't name him as the, as, as the, others, the entity receiving the subpoena. It's the businesses and the accounting firm. You know, one of the things I have found um, when we ever we talk about Supreme Court rulings, uh, and I'm speaking to a constitutional law professor, so I need to hedge my words correctly here. But <laughs> oftentimes we debate the issue largely on the outcome. And sometimes, that, to me, that, that, that could be a misnomer in that if I'm sitting here and let's just say I want to see the president's tax returns tomorrow and I didn't get that, it's a bad ruling. But what I'm hearing you say, those really aren't the salient issues that the Supreme Court were actually dealing with. Am I, am I, is that correct? How, how, how would you phrase that? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, was facing novel issues in both these cases. So in the congressional subpoena case, uh, the Supreme Court had never actually decided a case in which Congress had subpoenaed uh, records of the president. Um, and there were a lot of uncertainties about how, what, what the basic legal principles would be around such a case. Um, and as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, in fact, one, one important lower federal court had said that the, the, the court should not get involved in these kind of controversies at all. You know, Congress and the president both have a lot of weapons at their, at their disposal. They can fight this stuff out. Um, and actually, historically, that had tended to be what happened when Congress subpoenaed uh, the, the president for records. Um, there would be back and forth negotiation, some kind of compromise reached, and these things didn't come to the Supreme Court. So when the court issues decisions on questions like this, especially when they're novel, like can a state DA uh, bring a criminal uh, investigation against a sitting president, or can Congress enforce its subpoenas for the president's records, what the Supreme Court does here is establish very important principles that are going to govern you know, these issues long into the future as well as in this case. And uh, that may not be the very last step, in the process, right, the Supreme Court's decision doesn't determine, yes, these records must be turned over, but they establish the principles under which the next stage in this process will operate. And those principles, uh, I think, are very favorable uh, to Congress or a state district attorney um, in these contexts. Mm -hmm. How, how much did U.S. v. Nixon and Jones versus Clinton play into the Supreme Court's decision here? Yes, those are definitely um, the two most important Supreme Court precedents on this. Um, in the Nixon case, as you may remember, uh, the court uh, held that the special prosecutor in that case did have the legal right to get the secret tape recordings that President Nixon had made in the Oval Office. Um, and in the Clinton versus Jones case, the Supreme Court held that a civil action uh, against a sitting president could go forward. Um, and those were the two, those were the two most important precedents uh, that the court relied on here from the courts. Now, the other big precedent was the trial of Aaron Burr 
uh, for uh, uh, his efforts to, uh, to, to help Spain acquire part of the United States, where President Jefferson was um, subpoenaed for documents um, and ultimately uh, provided uh, those documents. Um, and uh, those were the three main precedents. But in terms of modern history, the Nixon case and the Clinton case uh, were, the, were definitely the two most important precedents here. And, and I should just say, you know, Nixon has always uh, stood, the Nixon case has always stood uh, for the basic principle that the president is not above the law, that the president can be accountable to the law. Um, and essentially, that's what the, courts relied, the court relied on in these cases in drawing from the Nixon case. I want to go back to my, um, my mythical person who wants to see the tax returns yesterday um, and, <coughs> and who's upset about this ruling. And they're, you know, they're going to, they would probably say to you, Professor Pildes, um, what I'm hearing the court say is Congress has subpoena power, but with some caveats. Would I be right? Yes, right. So in, in the congressional case, um, the court laid out uh, basically sort of four factors that, that lower courts are going to have to consider in deciding whether these subpoenas are valid and have to be complied with. And they're basically factors like, um, does Congress have a legitimate legislative purpose for looking for these documents? Um, is there some other way to get rel the relevant information that Congress has a legitimate interest in? Is there enough of a, uh, a, let's say, an evidentiary basis for Congress's starting this investigation? Um, and, and are the burdens on the president from complying with the investigation so significant that they interfere with his ability to serve as president? Um, so the court laid out a bunch of factors, and they're going to be fought about in the lower courts. Um, and I think the frustration you're, you're uh, sort of hearing from some of your um, listeners is uh, kind of a frustration of how slowly the legal system can move. And, and I think that is a, you know, that is a problem uh, with the, the operation of the legal system, particularly on cases that um, have a lot of time sensitivity to them. Um, so, you know, presidents have a certain advantage here if they resist Congress, because they can try to run out the clock. Um, and if the process drags on long enough, they may be out of office before there's any final resolution. And once they're out of office, Congress probably doesn't have uh, as strong a case for continuing to seek those records. Now, again, the, the Manhattan criminal investigation is different. Because even if President Trump leaves office after this first term, that investigation, if there's a basis uh, for concluding there's criminal activity involved in the way the business represented its you know, values for tax purposes of various real estate holdings, represented its the values of the business you know, for banks when they're applying for loans, that's ongoing. And that won't stop uh, when the president leaves office. Um, and if his tax returns are relevant to the criminal prosecution, if there is one of anybody uh, from the businesses, including the president, um, then those would come out in that context. Uh, but again, the next stage of this in the Manhattan criminal case is going to be another round in the courts, which I think will probably go fairly quickly. 
then there will be a grand jury investigation, which will be secret. Uh, and at the end of that process, if there are no criminal indictments, then none of this will be disclosed. If there are criminal indictments, then to the extent this information you know, is relevant for the prosecution, then the information, including the president's tax returns, uh, could come out at that point. Let me, let me give you a hypothetical, and we'll uh, go back to the Congress, since, since um, you make a great point in that once the election is over, and, and, we're not, and we are not making any predictions here, but let's say that President Trump is defeated, it would lessen uh, the motivation in theory for Congress to go forward. Uh, but because this president has the first, you know, in, in, in recent memory to not reveal any financial records and because he didn't technically break any laws by not doing that, would there, in your view, could there be a possible motivation to to codify this into law and therefore you would want to see these particular records in order to to justify having such a law going forward? Yeah, that's a very good point. So um, it's one can easily imagine that uh, if President Trump is defeated, um, and particularly if the Democrats are in control of uh, the House or the Senate or both, um, that the, uh, Congress will consider passing a law to require presidential candidates uh, to disclose their tax returns. And if Congress, if Congress is looking into legislation, is, if it's considering legislation to require presidents to release their tax returns, um, the president's tax returns could still be relevant for Congress's consideration of legislation on exactly that issue. Um, and so Congress might continue to have uh, a legitimate legislative purpose uh, in seeking those those records, uh, if it's if it's considering legislation like that. You know, looking at the the, the nation's founding, um, there was always, in my view, an implied assumption that there was a collective commitment to the success of the experiment. Would it be fair to suggest? that at least on the issue of, 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 of taxes, that the president and his legal team seems to be seems to have found a loophole that sort of exploits that commitment. Well, I mean let me put that in historical perspective a bit. So it really wasn't until uh, I believe President Carter uh, that presidential uh, candidates disclosed their tax returns. So this is this is a norm that has developed, you know, since the mid 1970s. Mm -hmm. Now all the uh, presidential candidates of the major parties uh, before Donald Trump did follow this norm, but it's a norm that you know got established in the wake of Watergate and the you know various uh, uh, problems with uh, President Nixon's uh, uh, second term and the reelection and all of the criminal matters involved with that. Um, that this norm developed. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's a it, it, it's certainly a good norm. Um, the fact that President Trump uh, defied it and uh, didn't seem to have major electoral consequences, at least in the sense that he got elected, 
means that Congress uh, may very well decide that they need to codify this norm, you know, to, to put it into legislation. Um, but it, but it, is, it, it, it is one of a number of post-Watergate uh, reforms uh, to the system, some through legislation, some through, through new, new understandings of what's proper and appropriate, the importance of transparency, uh, and the like. Uh, but it's not something that, you know, we can say goes back, uh, you know, to the start of the income tax. You, you, you know, one, I like, I like to have you talk about this in, 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 a, in a broader sense, but this seems to be a continuation of a trend that the legislative branch and the executive branch have been unable to fulfill a certain thing. And so they have put it on the judiciary to solve it. And that seems to be antithetical to the way our whole system of checks and balances was created. And, and not just this case, but talk about that in a larger sense. Am I on to something here? Or? Yeah, so I think, I, I think one way of looking at this is that the polarization of the political parties in the U.S. in the, in the modern era... Um, you know, really uh, sort of began in the late 70s, early 1980s. And it's been getting worse and worse and worse every sort of election cycle. Um, and now, as we know, um, I, I call this in my writing hyperpolarized democracy in America. That's a sort of a play on de Tocqueville's democracy yes. in America. Now what we have is hyperpolarized democracy in America. And so when the president... Uh, is from one party, and either the House or the Senate is controlled by the opposite party, um, we have these conflicts that at one time could be worked out uh, uh, through various accommodations and compromises and negotiations, and now just are totally intractable. Um, and then President Trump carried that to a level we've never seen before uh, by um, simply defying or ordering his um, aides to not respond to uh, all of these congressional subpoenas and taking a kind of a blanket, scorched earth uh, approach to this, which almost inevitably puts Congress in the position of turning to the courts uh, because there's just no, no basis for negotiation, for discussion. Um, you know, they're just, they're just at such a polarized and confrontational place um, that um, it's somewhat inevitable, I think, the courts are going to be drawn into that picture. Is that the way it was designed to work? No, the courts were never designed to be such uh, central players on so many sorts of issues. Um, but when uh, po politics are so polarized uh, that government across different parties in control of different parts of the government can't really effectively uh, work together at all, um, it, it's just not surprising that you're going to see the courts drawn into these conflicts. Now, you know, that's a, that, that was interesting backdrop here because, as I say, the president's defense here was, or part of his argument was, look, this has always been left outside the courts. Don't get involved. Um, and the Supreme Court here said, and I think probably recognizing that background reality of, of, of how our, our political culture works or doesn't work these days, um, 
decided that it was important and appropriate for the court to actually play this role, bring some clarity, um, establish what the what the basic legal principles are here that are in play. Um, and I think that clarity does provide a, a benefit to the system. Now, you know, each each institution has a much better sense of what it can and cannot do. Um, I, I guess just following that, though, in, 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 that, in that larger sense, doesn't this whole dysfunction that you just outlined uh, create the self-fulfilling prophecy, aha, the courts are legislating from the bench? When you, when you, ha when you have this dysfunction, doesn't that bring that criticism as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and it, 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 there, there are a couple of things that that kind of come into play when we have such a gridlocked and polarized political system. So, uh, if 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 Congress and the president can't, for example, develop legislation on major issues that are high up on the list of sort of public demands for action, uh, then it's entirely predictable. Uh, that a couple of things will happen. One, uh, people will turn to the courts and see if the courts can be brought into uh, the mix. Um, and secondly, administrative agencies uh, are going to end up being empowered um, because they will be the ones uh, who start taking action, even in the absence of congressional legislation or new congressional legislation under old statutes. Um, agencies may start uh, 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 being more assertive in certain areas. And, you know, both of those uh, are problematic. Um, you know, one way of thinking about this larger story is when our system was designed with separation of powers and three different pieces of the national political system, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, um, the framers of the Constitution didn't anticipate the rise of political parties. And once we got political parties, and once they became so polarized as they are in the modern era, then these institutions really function more in partisan terms uh, than, you know, in terms of some competing views of the national interest. And so if there's a, a Republican president, a Democratic House is going to be, you know, adamant and opposing in many ways, but same as vice, you know, true when the Democratic president's in, a Republican Senate going to be, you know, deeply dug in in opposition. Um, and this poses a, a huge challenge to the kind of separation of power system that we have. You know, can this separated power system function with such polarized divisions in the parties uh, if different parties control different parts of the national government, or are we just going to be paralyzed? And a big part of the story of the polarization that's emerged relentlessly ever since it began in the late 70s or early 80s is that the political process has been frozen in many respects. Um, and that's a, that's a very bad thing uh, uh, for democracy in America because people are going to get frustrated they're going to get alienated if big issues are not being addressed um they will turn to these less democratic entities the administrative agencies or the courts uh but my fear even more broadly is that you know at some point if the political process is not responding to 
public demands for policy, whether it's on environmental issues or immigration issues or health care issues or tax policy, whatever it might be, if these are major issues that the, that the political process is not capable of addressing, uh, you know, the ultimate worry is do people get uh, actually alienated from the democratic process itself? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's definitely something, um, one has, has to worry about. So, uh, and I, I, I don't know when we will get out of this hyper-polarized dynamic between the parties. There's certainly no basis for thinking that's going to change anytime in the immediate future. I, I want to read, I want to read to you a quote from, uh, Justice Brennan. And this was, uh, in a case involving, uh, William Proxmire. And Justice Brennan said, quote, speaking about um, congressional investigations, investigation conducted solely to punish the investigated, either by publicly or prosecution, is indefensible. It exceeds the congressional power. Exposure for the sake of exposure is not legislative inquiry. In your view, how close was Congress to encroaching on Brennan's Justice Brennan's concern. Yeah, well, that's a difficult and an interesting question. So um, Congress certainly, you know, doesn't have the power, though they have the temptation, <laughs> uh, you know, to want to harass um, and hamstring uh, a president of the opposing party. Uh, there's no question. We recognize Congress's temptation and incentives to do that. Uh, the Supreme Court in this decision uh, is very uh, sensitive to exactly what you quote from Justice Brennan there. Uh, and that's why the Supreme Court in this decision with respect to Congress says a congressional subpoena uh, has to have a legitimate legislative purpose, um, meaning uh, it has to be connected to Congress's consideration of potential legislation um, and uh, what the line is between uh, considering legislation and exposing what's gone on inside the executive branch you know that can that can be a thin line to be sure but if the courts were to conclude these you know subpoenas or any congressional subpoenas uh, were purely for harassment purposes uh, purely for partisan political purposes, um, uh, that would be beyond uh, Congress's powers under this decision in the congressional case. Um, and consistent, this case being consistent with what Justice Brennan said there in the Proxmire uh, case. Finally, does it frustrate you as a, as a constitutional law professor when, 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 when any, you have these high-profile cases debated on television that it is almost does it ever feel totally unrelated to what the issues were when it's being de debated in the public discourse and that sort of influences how the public discourse views a particular case well um i'll say two things first about these cases i think the public commentary has actually been relatively good at least the stuff i've seen um, you know, both sides are, you know, try to spin these decisions uh, towards their interests, and that's kind of to be predicted. But I think on these decisions, partly because they are fairly straightforward, um, to me, I, from what I've seen, it's, the commentary has been reasonably uh, solid. 
but what you point out here is absolutely true. It's uh, uh, very frustrating often uh, to see the way Supreme Court decisions uh, are, are, are commented on, um, and not just by people who don't necessarily understand the law, uh, but um, you know, in our polarized culture, uh, a lot of the commentary has also become extremely polarized. Uh, and so people commenting on these decisions uh, you know, have uh, the sky is falling in you know, one direction or the other direction uh, reactions. And I think those are, um, in, in many contexts I've seen certainly, not nuanced, not uh, appreciative of the, the, the legal principles. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly with a chief justice like Chief Justice Roberts, who tends to be very kind of incremental uh, in, in the way he's comfortable deciding cases, there could be small but critical points and distinctions that often just get blown through um, in the kind of commentary that we have. Of course, you go on the Internet now and you can find anybody uh, you want uh, for any view you want. Um, and, and so that, that does make it difficult to, to have these decisions kind of be understood and, you know, in, in, in their proper terms. So that is a real concern, absolutely, and a frustration. Well, you just gave me a great idea. Instead of having you on uh, with your constitutional expertise, I will just forego that in the future and just, ha and just interview myself. I have a law degree, but but I have passed a local tavern, so I and technically I've passed the bar. So, I'll, you know, I mean, cause, cause, because I, unfortunately, it sounds like that's where we're headed, right? <laughs> that that's what that that is part of what's happened with social media and you know the the the, the kind of world we we live in these days. Um, you know, there's no filtering, gatekeeper kind of uh, structures uh, anymore. Um, and uh, the more inflammatory, the more outraged, the, the more, you know, clicks things get, and then the more people see that, and the more they're fed that. Um, and, you know, that's, we, we all, we're all aware of the, of, of, of the problem that poses for our political culture, and it's also something that's a problem for commentary on Supreme Court decisions. So, so, so this show is, and this interview is actually, we're dinosaurs because no one yelled at each other. We just had a judicious conversation. <laughs> uh, Richard Pildes, NYU constitutional law professor, former clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall. Thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on the public morality. I much appreciated it. Well, and I always like doing your show for exactly this reason, that we can have extended discussions and not little sound bites. So thank you for, for hosting a show like this. I want to thank today's guest, law professor Richard Pildes. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.